Section 15 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 1, Chapter 4. Of the Progress of Chemistry under Paracelsus and His Disciples. Part 1. Hitherto we have witnessed only the first rude beginnings, or, as it were, the early dawn of the chemical day. It is from the time of Paracelsus that the true commencement of chemical investigations is to be dated. Not that Paracelsus or his followers understood the nature of the science, or undertook any regular or successful investigation. But Paracelsus shook the medical throne of Galen and Avicenna to its very foundation. He roused the latent energies of the human mind, which had for so long a period lain torpid. He freed medical men from those trammels and put an end to that despotism which had existed for five centuries. He pointed out the importance of chemical medicines and of chemical investigations to the physician. This led many laborious men to turn their attention to the subject. Those metals which were considered as likely to afford useful medicines, mercury, for example, and antimony, were exposed to the action of an infinite number of reagents, and a prodigious collection of new products obtained and introduced into medicine. Some of these were better and some worse than the preparations formerly employed. But all of them led to an increase of the stock of chemical knowledge, which now began to accumulate with considerable rapidity. It will be proper, therefore, to give a somewhat particular account of the life and opinions of Paracelsus, so far as they can be made out from his writings, because, Though he was not himself a scientific chemist, he may be truly considered as the man through whose means the stock of chemical knowledge was accumulated, which was afterwards, by the ingenuity of Becker and Stahl, moulded into a scientific form. Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Paracelsus Bombast ab Hohenheim, as he denominates himself, was born at Einsiedeln, two German miles from Zurich. His father was called William Bombast von Hohenheim. He was a very near relation of George Bombast von Hohenheim, who became afterwards Grand Master of the Order of Johannites. William Bombast von Hohenheim practiced medicine at Einsiedeln. After receiving the first rudiments of his education in his native city, he became a wandering scholastic, as was then the custom with poor scholars. He wandered from province to province, predicting the future by the position of the stars and the lines on the hand, and exhibiting all the chemical processes which he had learned from founders and alchemists. For his initiation in alchemy, astrology, and medicine, he was indebted to his father, who was much devoted to these three sciences. 
Paracelsus mentions also the names of several ecclesiastics from whom he received chemical information. Among others, Trithemius, abbot of Spanheim, Bishop Scheidt of Stettbach, Bishop Erhardt of Laventhal, Bishop Nicholas of Hippon, and Bishop Matthew Schacht. He seems also to have served some years as an army surgeon, for he mentions many cures which he performed in the Low Countries, in the States of the Church, in the Kingdom of Naples, and during the wars against the Venetians, the Danes, and the Dutch. There is some uncertainty whether he received a regular college education, as was then the practice with all medical men. He acknowledges himself that his medical antagonists reproached him with never having frequented their schools, and he is perpetually affirming that a physician should receive all his knowledge from God and not from men. But if we can trust his own assertions, there can be no doubt that he took a regular medical degree, which implies a regular college education. He tells us in his preface to his Chirurgia Magna that he visited the universities of Germany, France, and Italy. He assures his readers that he was the ornament of the schools where he studied. He even speaks of the oath which he was obliged to take when he received his medical degree. But where he studied, or where and when he received his medical degree, are questions which neither Paracelsus nor his disciples nor his biographers have enabled us to solve. If he ever attended a university, he must have neglected his studies, otherwise he could not have been ignorant, as he confessedly was, of the very first elements of the most common kinds of knowledge. But if he neglected the universities, he labored long and assiduously with the rich Sisigmund Fugerus of Schwartz in order to learn the true secret of forming the philosopher's stone. He gives us some details of the numerous journeys that he made, as was customary with the alchemists of the time, into the mountains of Bohemia, the East, and Sweden, to inspect the mines, to get himself initiated into the mysteries of the Eastern adepts, to inspect the wonders of nature, and to view the celebrated Diamond Mountain, the position of which, however, he unfortunately forgets to specify. In the preface to his Chirurgia Magna, he informs us that he traversed Spain, Portugal, England, Prussia, Poland, and Transylvania where he not only profited by the information of the medical men with whom he became acquainted, but that he drew much precious information from old women, gypsies, conjurers, and chemists. He spent several years in Hungary, and informs us that at Weissenburg in Croatia and in Stockholm, he was taught by several old women to prepare drinks capable of curing ulcers. He is said also to have made a voyage into Egypt and even into Tartary, and he accompanied the son of the Khan of the Tartars to Constantinople in order to learn the secret of the philosopher's stone from Trismogin, who inhabited that capital. 
This prodigious activity, this constant motion from place to place, left him but little leisure for reading. Accordingly, he informs us himself that during the space of ten years he never opened a book, and that his whole library consisted only of six sheets. The inventory of his books drawn up after his death confirms this recital, for they consisted only of the Bible, the concordance to the Bible, the New Testament, and the commentaries of St. Jerome on the Evangelists. We know not at what period he returned back to Germany, but at the age of 33, the great number of fortunate cures which he had performed rendered him an object of admiration to the people and of jealousy to the rival physicians of the time. He assures us that he cured eighteen princes whose diseases had been aggravated by the practitioners devoted to the system of Galen. Among others, he cured Philip, Margrave of Baden, of a dysentery, who promised him a great reward, but did not keep his promise, and even treated him in a way unworthy of that prince. This cure, however, and others of a similar nature, added greatly to his celebrity. And in order to raise his reputation to the highest possible pitch, he announced publicly that he was able to cure all the diseases hitherto reckoned incurable, and that he had discovered an elixir by means of which the life of men might be prolonged at pleasure to any extent whatever. He began the practice, which has since been so successfully followed in this country, of dispensing medicines gratuitously to the poor, in order to induce the rich to apply to him for assistance when they were overtaken with diseases. In the year 1526, Paracelsus was appointed professor of physic and surgery in the University of Basel. This appointment was given him, it is said, by the recommendation of Ecolampadius. He introduced the custom of lecturing in the common language of the country, as is at present the universal practice. But during the time of Paracelsus, and long after indeed, all lectures were delivered in Latin. The new method which he followed in explaining the theory and practice of the art the numerous fortunate cures which he stated in confirmation of his method of treatment, the emphasis with which he spoke of his secrets for prolonging life and for curing every kind of disease without distinction, but still more his lecturing in a language which was understood by the whole population drew to Baal an immense crowd of idle, enthusiastic and credulous hearers. The lectures which he delivered on practical medicine still remain, written in a confused mixture of German and barbarous Latin, and containing little or nothing except a farrago of empirical remedies advanced with the greatest confidence. They have a much greater resemblance to a collection of quack advertisements than to the sober lectures of a professor in a university. In the month of November 1526, he wrote to Christopher Clauser, a physician in Zurich, that as Hippocrates was the first physician among the Greeks, Avicenna among the Arabians, 
Galen among the Pergamenians and Marcellus among the Italians, so he was beyond dispute the greatest physician among the Germans. Every country produces an illustrious physician whose medicines are adapted to the climate in which he lived, but not suited to other countries. The remedies of Hippocrates were good to the Greeks, but not suitable to the Germans. Thus, it was necessary that an inspired physician should spring up in every country, and that he was the person destined to teach the Germans the art of curing all diseases. Paracelsus began his professional career by burning publicly in his classroom and in the presence of his pupils the works of Galen and Avicenna, assuring his hearers that the strings of his shoes possessed more knowledge than those two celebrated physicians. All the universities united had not, he assured them, as much knowledge as was contained in his own beard, and the hairs upon his neck were better informed than all the writers that ever existed put together. To give the reader an idea of the arrogant absurdity of his pretensions, I shall translate a few sentences of the preface to his tract entitled Paragranum, where he indulges in his usual strain of rhodomontad. Me, me you shall follow, you Avicenna, you Galen, you Rhesis, you Montagnana, you Mesue. I shall not follow you, but you shall follow me. You, I say, you inhabitants of Paris, you inhabitants of Montpellier, you Suevi, you Messinians, you inhabitants of Cologne, you inhabitants of Vienna, all you whom the Rhine and the Danube nourish, you who inhabit the islands of the sea, you also Italy, you Dalmatia, you Athens, you Greek, you Arabian, you Israelite. I shall not follow you, but you shall follow me. Nor shall anyone lurk in the darkest and most remote corner whom the dogs shall not piss upon. I shall be the monarch, the monarchy shall be mine. If I administer and I bind up your loins, is he with whom you are at present delighted a cacophrastus? This ordure must be eaten by you. What will your opinion be when you see your cacophrastus constituted the chief of the monarchy? What will you think when you see the sect of Theophrastus leading on a solemn triumph if I make you pass under the yoke of my philosophy? Your Pliny will you call Cacopliny, and your Aristotle, Caco-Aristotle? If I plunge them together with your Porphyry, Albertus, etc., and the whole of their compatriots into my necessary. But the terms become now so coarse and indelicate that I cannot bring myself to proceed further with the translation. Enough has been given to show the extreme arrogance and folly of Paracelsus. So far, however, was this impudence and grossness from injuring the interest of Paracelsus that we are assured by Ramus and Orstitius that it contributed still further to increase it. The coarseness of his language was well suited to the vulgarity of the age. 
and his arrogance and boasting were considered, as usual, as a proof of superior merit. The cure which he performed on Frobenius drew the attention of Erasmus himself, who consulted him about the diseases with which he was afflicted, and the letters that passed between them are still preserved. The epistle of Paracelsus is short, enigmatical, and unintelligible. That of Erasmus is distinguished by that clearness and elegance which characterize his writings. But Frobenius died in the month of October 1527, and the antagonists of Paracelsus attributed his death, and probably with justice, to the violent remedies which had been administered to a man whose constitution had been destroyed by the gout. His death contributed not a little to tarnish the glory of Paracelsus, but he suffered the greatest injury from the habits of intoxication in which he indulged, and from the vulgarity of the way in which he spent his time. He hardly ever went into his classroom to deliver a lecture till he was half intoxicated, and scarcely ever dictated to his secretaries till he had lost the use of his reason by a too liberal indulgence in wine. If he was summoned to visit a patient, he scarcely ever went but in a state of intoxication. Not unfrequently he passed the whole night in the alehouse in the company of peasants, and when morning came was quite incapable of performing the duties of his station. On one occasion, after a debauch which lasted the whole night, he was called next morning to visit a patient. On entering the room he inquired if the sick person had taken anything. Nothing, was the answer, except the body of our Lord. Since you have already, says he, provided yourself with another physician, my presence here is unnecessary. And he left the apartment instantly. When Albertus Bassa, physician to the king of Poland, visited Paracelsus in the city of Basel, he carried him to see a patient whose strength was completely exhausted, and which, in his opinion, it was impossible to restore. But Paracelsus, wishing to make a parade of his skill, administered to him three drops of his laudanum, and invited him to dine with him next day. The invitation was accepted, and the sick man dined next day with his physician. Footnote. There were two laudanums of Paracelsus. One was red oxide of mercury, the other consisted of the following substances. Chloride of antimony, one ounce. Hepatic aloes, one ounce. Rose water, half an ounce. Saffron, three ounces. Amber grease, two drams all these well mixed. Towards the end of the year 1527, a disgraceful dispute into which he entered brought his career as a professor to a sudden termination. The canon Cornelius of Lichtenfels, who had been long a martyr to the gout, employed him as his physician, and promised him one hundred florins if he could cure him. Paracelsus made him take three pills of laudanum, and having thus freed him from pain, demanded the sum agreed upon, but Lichtenfels refused to pay him the whole of it. Paracelsus summoned him before the court, 
and the magistrate of Basel decided that the canon was bound to pay only the regular price of the medicine administered. Irritated at this decision, our intoxicated professor uttered a most violent invective against the magistrate, who threatened to punish him for his outrageous conduct. His friends advised him to save himself by flight. He took their advice and thus abdicated his professorship. But by this time, his celebrity as a teacher had been so completely destroyed by his foolish and immoral conduct that he had lost all his hearers. In consequence of this state of things, his flight from Basel produced no sensation whatever in that university. End of section 15. Recording by Dorothy Godfrey Smith.